Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to Discover DEP, the official podcast of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Each week, we talk with DEP experts about how we protect and preserve New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. So that you'll never miss one of our podcasts, please subscribe to Discover DEP on iTunes or Google Play. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello, this is Gladys Geron, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. Today, we are joined by Roche Outlaw and Joseph Donald to talk about DEP's Office of Environmental Justice. To help address environmental inequities, DEP launched the Environmental Justice Program to ensure fair treatment for people of all races, cultures, and incomes in the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The Environmental Justice Program aims to empower citizens who are often outside the decision-making process of government and strives to address environmental concerns to improve the quality of life in New Jersey's urban and older suburban communities. Roche, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. What is environmental justice? Environmental justice has a long and rich history, and I'm not sure if a lot of people really realize that environmental justice and the environmental justice movement has its roots and ties to the civil rights movement from the 1960s. But in the state of New Jersey, we look at environmental justice in the same way that EPA does through its definition of environmental justice being the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of the race, color, national origin, income, with respect to development, implementation, and the enforcement of the environmental laws, regulations, and policy. We focus on two key aspects of that definition, and that's fair treatment and meaningful involvement. Fair treatment because we think that all people deserve the right to have clean water, clean air, clean land, and access to historical and natural resources. And meaningful involvement, people having an opportunity to participate in the decisions about the activities that affect their environment and their health. And the public's contributions can influence the regulatory agency's decisions. Their concerns will be considered in the decision-making process. And meaningful involvement also means that the decision-makers seek out and facilitate the involvement of those potentially affected. New Jersey has a rich history of a manufacturing and industrial past. Just to name a few locations in New Jersey, like Patterson, also known as Silk City, or Trenton, where Trenton makes the World Takes Bridge over the Delaware. And in Camden, where you have the twin cities of Camden and Philadelphia, divided by the Delaware and Cooper Rivers. That industrial past has caused a lot of negative externalities that we are actually focusing our attention to as it relates to environmental justice. Some of them are brownfields and contaminated lands in our urban communities. Some of the polluting industries in and around our urban communities air quality and water quality issues, combined sewage overflow, our mobile sources, and some communities are also known as food deserts, where they lack access to good quality, healthy food, the affordability of those healthy foods and the availability of those foods. 
Joe, Rache mentioned some of the environmental justice issues that are currently facing New Jersey. And she mentioned food deserts, brownfields, and contaminated land in urban areas. We've briefly covered brownfields and food deserts here before, but why don't you tell me a little more about what a food desert is and maybe how they're connected to brownfields? Well, food deserts are endemic around the country. About 87% of urban areas are considered to be food deserts. They're areas where there's lack of healthy food, namely fruits and vegetables, lack of access, lack of affordability, and essentially you have low-income minority communities that don't have the same quality of foods that you would have maybe in suburban areas. So you're saying that there's no fresh food fruit and vegetables. What does that mean? There's no stores, there's no farms. How how do people get their food? Interestingly, it's not that there is a lack of food. Invariably, there is food, but in most cases, it's substandard. So you may have uh, bodegas, uh, fast foods, restaurants, small corner stores, which provide food, but not necessarily high quality, healthy food. So fresh fruits and vegetables, they're just not there, is what you're saying. Essentially, we should consume at least five fruits and vegetables on a daily basis. Now, if you've ever been into some corner stores or bodegas in urban communities, you may see food that is sitting on the shelves or sitting in sort of baskets that are brown, black, flies all around them, but they're not healthy but they're for sale. And essentially, if you're going to consume food, the best foods are healthy, fresh foods, especially fruits and vegetables. Local fruits and vegetables. Preferable local. They call that locavores, where you get food from local providers and in terms of what they call food miles. So the food travels a less distance to the point of sale as opposed to buying an avocado that may come from Chile or South and Central America. So how is that connected to brownfields and contaminated land in these urban areas? Well, brownfields and contaminated lands are really negative externalities from our industrial past. As Shay had mentioned earlier, there may have been sites within most of our urban communities where there were ironworks or fabrics that were manufactured and various and sundry manufacturing outlets that the outputs of the manufacturing may have actually caused some degradation to the air, land, or water. That degradation, at some point, needed to be cleaned up. In some cases, the owners of manufacturing left without cleaning it up and or couldn't afford to clean it up. And so, therefore, we are now left with the negative externalities of those sites which need to be cleaned up. And in most cases, we consider them to be brownfield sites. The much larger sites that require a lot more investment of capital are called Superfund sites, which invariably the US Environmental Protection Agency takes responsibility for those sites. Brownfield sites in New Jersey, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection essentially has responsibility for cleanup of those sites or to assist with the cleanup. Roche, what are some environmental justice initiatives that DEP is spearheading? 
We have been involved in coordinating with our programs and trying to be proactive in our approach to addressing environmental justice. And proactive in the sense that we do program coordination and we do activities, working with our programs to help support what we see happening in the communities. That program support that I'm actually referring to is working very closely with our compliance and enforcement program and helping to implement supplemental environmental projects, also known as SEPs. We've implemented four SEPs programs in the last two years, one being with Groundwork Elizabeth and the More Peace program. And I understand that you've had a prior podcast with them. Mm -hmm. So I encourage your listeners to go and listen to that podcast. We also have a SEP that we engaged with the New Jersey Tree Foundation in Newark, helping to support the planting of trees to reduce the air emissions in Newark. And our most recent one is with the Urban League of Essex County developing a Be Ready program, working with at-risk youth to develop job training around apiary and developing a bee program and community garden. Rache, can you tell me more about this program at Newark? We actually partnered with the New Jersey Tree Foundation in Newark, and they plant trees very similar to uh, the tree plantings that take place in Camden as well. You may be familiar with the Camden tree planting events, but in Newark, this foundation actually partners with the community, provides them with all types of trees, fruit trees, shade trees, and they actually go out in the community and provide education and help them with the resource of planting these trees. And they also seek volunteers from the communities in which those trees are being planted to help them to do the plantings. Absolutely. They encourage them to maintain their trees, providing resources for them to do that. And it's also beautification to the community as well as an environmental benefit. That sounds like a great program. And we'll have a link in our podcast description for anyone in Newark that would like to volunteer. You mentioned Groundwork Elizabeth, and we've had Groundwork Elizabeth on our podcast before. We haven't just stayed on the sidelines with Groundwork Elizabeth. We've actually had volunteer days with Groundwork Elizabeth. Can you tell us about those? Absolutely. It was very exciting to partner with Groundwork Elizabeth to promote their urban agriculture activities and initiatives through our More Peace project. Not only are we assisting them financially and providing technical assistance, we wanted to be able to go out and provide that community with actual hands-on resources to them by volunteering and helping out with the activities and projects that they've already planned. We have had four what we call DEP volunteer days. We've gone out in the community taking upwards of 70 DEP employees to help with the activities associated with their urban gardens. We've planted trees. We've gone out and helped provide assistance with building raised beds and gardens. We've done some farming and harvesting through plantings of edible foods. We've done site cleanups and helping with restoration projects. It's been a tremendous asset to the employees of DEP to be able to give back to a community physically. Yes, and I'm sure it's a tremendous asset to the people of Elizabeth as well who are being provided with the fresh fruits and vegetables that they lack as a food desert. Right. So in response to your earlier question, that is a typical food desert and a typical response based on a community 
organization or development organization that has tried to make a difference by developing a food system directly to address food deserts that exist not only in Elizabeth but in surrounding communities as well. What kind of procedural steps are in place in New Jersey to combat issues of environmental justice? We try to address this in two ways. We try to do an internal, what we call an internal and external approach. And we try to be proactive. Our internal approach is really to work very closely with our program areas and other agencies like the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture, working with our New Jersey School Development Authority to help address the concerns that we see in our communities. And then we also have our external approach, uh, where we work very closely with our Environmental Justice Advisory Council, our regulated community, bringing about ways to enhance our community engagement, our community engagement practices, our public awareness as it relates to our internal operations, our permits, our enforcements, etc. Now, if I could just add, both the internal and the external are woven by one word, collaboration. And we see collaboration as extremely important to our office because we are a strong office of two. (laughs) So in order to do the work that we do, we have to collaborate both internally and externally in order to expand our base and build capacity. Roche, you mentioned the Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Can you tell us a little about what that is and what is DEP's role The Environmental Justice Advisory Council is actually an 18-member stakeholder body that the commissioner has selected to address and provide recommendations relating to environmental justice in the state of New Jersey. We have had the opportunity to reestablish the Environmental Justice Advisory Council, also known as EJAC, and we've also reestablished them through an administrative order, Order 2016-08. Currently, we have 16 members on our board, and our council is divided into sub-working groups to address the very specific concerns relating to air, land, water, environmental education, and communication. What is the makeup of the members? Who gets to be a member on this Environmental Justice Advisory Council? The 18-member body is comprised of stakeholders from across the state. We have actually divided the state up into four quadrants, northeast, south, west. We also have a fifth area, which is considered at large. So in each one of those areas, we have various members that are represented on the advisory council. So we have religious organizations that are represented, not-for-profit organizations that are represented, small business, industry, municipal government, county government. So it's a vast array of entities that are represented among those 18 members. And every one of those members brings a perspective and their own point of view and represents their constituents back home in each of these quadrants that you mentioned. Right, and different skill sets which go a long way to help with the work that the Environmental Justice Advisory Council is doing. What kind of work is the EJAC Council doing? The EJAC Council has been diligently working over the last 12 months, and actually we're coming out with their first year report in the next few weeks. But they've subdivided themselves into four working group areas, as I mentioned before, air, water, land, and environmental education and communication. And they've been working on what are those priorities that they wanted to bring recommendations to the commissioner. So our air working group has been working very closely, looking at 
ways to reduce air pollution in and around the port areas, specifically the port of Camden, Bayonne, Newark, and Elizabeth. And they've made recommendations to the commissioner on what can be done to reduce the port emissions. A land working group decided to focus in on addressing the urban agriculture in the state of New Jersey. What does that look like? How can we advance urban agriculture in New Jersey? And the land working group fairly recently held a urban agriculture symposium. And they're making recommendations to the commissioner from the input that was garnered from those members that participate. And they're looking to write a white paper to follow up with the key recommendations that came out of the meeting raised by the attendees to address urban agriculture and how we can advance that through DEP as well as the Department of Agriculture. And I'd just like to add, there had to be approximately 50 to 60 attendees that supported the symposium? Yes, that's correct. We had a great turnout. As a matter of fact, we were limited because of our capacity of the room. We had to turn invited guests away. But hopefully, going forward, we'll be able to expand that and follow up with those attendees and other interested parties with the outcome of their recommendations and forwarding those to the commissioner. Our next working group is our water working group. And our water working group actually decided to focus in on two major issues. One was lead in drinking water and being able to provide an educational component to getting the information out as it relates to lead in drinking water. They decided to do a pilot in Irvington Township to disseminate door knockers to provide educational information on precautionary measures that you can take to reduce your potential exposure to lead in drinking water. Their other initiative was to develop recommendations to the commissioner to work closely with the department's CSO teams to address flooding as it relates to CSOs. And finally, our education and communication working group identified areas and pathways where they can address environmental justice, working closely with our Office of Communications to be able to provide a more open and transparent way of communicating. Their areas of focus was looking at ways that they could enhance the department's communication and outreach efforts through social media, through our website, as well as developing a comprehensive list of contacts so that the department is able to enhance their outreach in our urban and environmental justice communities. Joe Rache, this sounds like important work that this council is doing, and I look forward to hearing and seeing more of this. So, Joe, we talked about the EJAG and regulated community, but what other external procedures do we have when we're dealing with environmental justice? Well, one thing that I need to explain is that environmental justice, as it stands currently, is not just Rache and I reacting to putting out fires and meeting with various communities to address complaints. We, in a collaborative way, seek to be as proactive as we can in attempting to find out what the municipality's local goals are and then attempting to address local goals and then we attempt to establish and or find out what municipality's local goals are and then how they dovetail and mesh with our program priorities. Essentially, 
our capacity building comes through the various programs where we may need support from air or support from SRP and bring those to the table with the municipalities in order to address their needs. Now, there are two or three areas here that really need to be addressed. And I think, Roche, if you would pick up the conversation. Sure. We try to work very closely, as I mentioned, with our regulated community, but we also enhance public awareness and community engagement as it relates to our permit applications. The department realizes that we need to enhance our ability to reach non-English speaking people. So we're in the process right now of developing a pilot with a multilingual language line service to see if that will be effective in being able to speak to people through our WARN DEP hotline in various languages. We are piloting this multilingual service with our partners in Perth Amboy, which are part of our community collaborative initiative. And hopefully, if it's successful, we will be able to expand this multilingual language service to all communities so that you may phone in to our hotline and speak in your language. Roche, Joe, this is obviously very important work. The commissioner thinks so. And... You guys are doing a great job. But let me ask you, how did you get involved in environmental justice? She made me. That's it. (laughs) I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, during the time of segregation and civil rights. And my family had a very active role and involvement with the civil rights movement. So you can kind of say it's been ingrained into my being and my existence. And I've always had a passion for serving and helping communities and helping others. And when I started working in the Department of Environmental Protection, I've always kind of gravitated to working with the assistance of those who may not have a voice, of those who may not have had their concerns heard. Roche, you mentioned briefly your family's history in the civil rights movement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? My family and I attended Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church. And during that time in the early 60s, my father was a deacon in the church and he was also the treasurer of the church. We were members of that church during the time of Dr. Martin Luther King. Of course, I was a little girl at the time, and I've heard the stories over and over again of um, how the families were so close. My father and Dr. King were very close and personal friends. Um, They spent time when he wanted to get away. He spent time at our house with our family. And the story, as it goes, that Dr. King and his wife were over to the house, it was perhaps shortly after Christmas, And he came in and he was teasing me with the toys that I just received. And one was a baby doll and a rocking chair. And he was teasing me and pretending to sit in my rocking chair. And he goes to pretend to sit and the rocking chair breaks. And I had a tantrum. I was about two or three years old. To be honest, I have really no recollection at this point of the story, but my family all tell me how I acted out and my father was so embarrassed and Dr. King was so embarrassed that the next day he came back over to the house to replace the rocking chair that he broke. So it was through that involvement and through my parents' civic involvement in Montgomery through the bus boycott movement. My father told me stories of how he and Dr. King sat down along with my godmother, 
Thelma Glass, who lived across the street from us, and how they actually sat down and started the development of the bus boycott movement, working with the students of Alabama State to effectively develop the bus boycott movement, to which everyone, I'm sure, is quite familiar with Rosa Parks sitting on the bus and not giving up her seat at the time. You can say that it's really been ingrained in me to be involved and to be involved in our communities and communities of concern and need and to be an advocate for those who are disproportionately impacted from environmental pollution. I enjoy my job. It's a passion. I appreciate working and being involved and honestly trying to bring about a better quality of life for all residents in the state of New Jersey. Joe, how long have you been working with Rache at the Office of Environmental Justice? I have been with the office about three and a half years. Interestingly, I had in a prior life when I was with the Department of Community Affairs, I was the designee to the then commissioner on what was called the Environmental Justice Task Force. Now, this would have been 2003, 2004. This position with environmental justice is more of a calling than it is a job. I do it because I love it. I do it because it's an extension of who I am. And I didn't realize until I was probably 22 years of age that I grew up in a place called Deptford, London, in a community that was half a mile from the second largest coal-fired power plant in Europe. And we experience, on a regular basis, smog. And as young children, we played in it. We thought it was great to play hide-and-go-seek because we couldn't see other people that were five feet away from us because it was so dense. Wow. We constantly would have dark days, but not realize that it was the smoke that was blowing from the power plant that was actually hiding the sky. Later on, at the age of about 30, I became a land use planner, but always had the desire to be involved in issues of sustainability, but more importantly, issues of community development. I was more interested in seeking out what I could do to make communities that I was working in better. That was the reason why I became a planner in the first place, because I wanted to make a difference. When the opportunity opened up, for me to actually move into the Office of Environmental Justice, I couldn't believe it. That was my calling. That was where I needed to be, and that's where I'll probably be until I retire. Joe, Roche, you guys are certainly passionate about what you do here, and we appreciate the work that you do for those that are underrepresented, and you make sure they are represented. Thank you for your work. And we will certainly have a link to the Office of Environmental Justice on our podcast description and other useful links related to environmental justice. Rache, Joe, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.